Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome to episode 16 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about update on interest rates. The Federal Reserve came out and announced their latest interest rate move, as well as other central banks around the world came out. And there's a divergence of policy now. So we got some interesting things to talk about there. We're going to give a quick earnings update. Big tech is released. So we've got some mixed news there based on what was released. And the dreaded inverted yield curve. It's been inverted for a while now. So we thought it would be helpful to unpack what that means Why are there all these articles that talk about how the inverted yield curve always leads to or predicts a recession? We thought it would be helpful to unpack all of that. So to kick us off, let's start with update on interest rates. And the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by 0.25% most recently. And Hal, let me turn it over to you to unpack that. And as well as we can talk through some of the guidance that they issued here at their last meeting. Sure. Yeah. And thanks, Chris. And hi, everyone. I think the the Fed decision and Jay Powell's like following remarks have a lot to do with uh, the rally that has recently faded. Uh, it's Friday, just what February tenth at nine forty Pacific. So right now the market is flattish, except for the Nasdaq has given back some of its uh, year beginning gains which has been pretty, pretty powerful. So as expected, there was no surprise about the, the 0.25% rate hike, but the surprise was some language that he used and he used it again the next day. And that that's uh, the term disinflation. And we've heard about these new terms about transitory and obviously inflation, but now we have a new term to digest is disinflation. Mm-hmm. What that means is inflation is still going inflating, like prices are still going up, but they're not going up as as fast. And to be clear, this is not a situation where we're looking at deflation, which I think is incredibly bad. Um, if we look back in history, the 1930s had deflation, and so much so that you know farmers. Uh, specifically milk producers were not willing to sell their eggs or milk for what they believed was a fair price because they had labor, they had farmland to tend to, right? And if the price of milk is crashing, they're, they're not selling the milk. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at or Google photos of uh, milk farmers dumping their milk in the 1930s, there were mm-hmm. riots over this. So this was big big bad news. So let's get deflation out of the picture, right? I know some some market or money money managers, specifically like Kathy Wood, are saying deflation, which I think is just a, such a dangerous economic environment, which you do need a severe recession to have uh, significant deflation. And that's, that's a term that I think we aren't even considering at the moment. So 
disinflation, um, after the bit of the detour there, disinflation really gave the market charge, meaning we're seeing disinflation in in non-housing services, which is super specific, but you think about anything that's not housing related, that's restaurants, that's airlines, that's car rentals, yada, yada, yada. The prices, the price increases are slowing down, if not coming coming in flat. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're going to be higher than they were in the last two years, but we're no longer driving faster on the freeway. We're, we're still driving 75, but we're not speeding up to 90, 100 miles an hour. And I think that the market really honed in on that one term like they did in the summer, and we got a rally. And I know uh, last last week we talked about whether it matter or not if this rally was for real or not right for a long-term investors again we don't we don't recommend any day trading here but a lot of people are coming out and saying hey this is a false rally this is based on um, expectations and conjecture but that's what the market really is it's forward-looking and you could see the money on the sidelines has just been anticipating something like this some some kind of green light to jump into. And I think that's what we're seeing uh, now. And what we saw in July, was it premature in July? Yeah, maybe. But did it ultimately matter? No, maybe not. Because we still ended the year not as bad, but we didn't end the year positive. So there's been a divergence here as well. The The Federal Reserve came out and they said, we're going to raise by 0.25. And I believe they gave guidance that they're going to raise likely by two more times of 0.25. Is that is that what they came out and said? Uh, their forecasts say two more times. Uh, mm-hmm. The market's saying one more time. So there's ah, a bit of a diver- That's the divergence. Well, the other what divergence- I was getting at there was the, the European Central Bank raised yes, by 0.5. Yeah. And they came out and said, we're going to do that again in March. And they said they expect a strong European economy, which is maybe surprising, really but good. Surprising, yeah. Um, but that China's reopening would keep inflation elevated. And then the Bank of England also hiked by 0.5%. Uh, but they suggested that rates may have peaked. Lastly, the Bank of Canada hiked by 0.25. Their rates are only at four and a half, so quite a bit lower than where we are here in the U.S. Um, And they said they would essentially hold as long as inflation has tamed. So what do you make of all this? There's, there's, you know, the U.S. was the first to raise and the fastest to raise by far. Yeah. What do you make of what's going on now? Yeah, and it was a result of us being the quickest to the exit was the dollar strength in, right? So mm-hmm. interest rates dynamics are a global phenomenon where if I wanted to invest in euros, I would expect a certain amount of interest in return. So mm-hmm. when I exchange back, I hopefully make money when I exchange back to US dollars, vice versa. When our inter- central bank raised rates faster, that we got higher interest on the US dollar, right? Couple of that with tons of other factors where Europe was expected to have, you know, a recession and China was locked down. So all this money funneled in and strengthened the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Now, over the past four or five months, we saw the U.S. dollar peak and then come down and it started weakening. And people needed, we, we've talked about it before, people need to get over the fact that 
the term strong or weak isn't necessarily good or bad for one or the other, right? A weak mm -hmm. dollar actually improves our exports, right? Mm -hmm. How many Teslas do we sell world, worldwide? And how much will that help, you know, Tesla sales? Because relatively speaking, buying a Tesla overseas is suddenly more affordable. Mm -hmm. So is the, the petrodollar, right? We, we mentioned gas is, or gas and oil is priced too, or pegged to the U.S. dollar. So if the mm -hmm. U.S. dollar weakens, that makes it suddenly more, more affordable. I don't know if it's completely affordable yet, but that <clears throat> is bringing relief to the, the your international space. And by no surprise, international has beaten the U.S. on the one-year trail. And that's mostly since October because <clears throat> they've been keeping track with, with the U.S., if not doing work. But it's, it's actually jumped so high in the last four months that it's not only caught up, but it's exceeded U.S. performance. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so that's interesting. So we talked about that a little bit last time. We talked about how international stocks have done better than the U.S. in the, in the short term. And that's almost a long time coming because they've been so, so, such an underperforming asset class for so many years. Do we think this is a sea change? Or do we think this is a blip on the radar due to dollar strength and dollar weakening? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a bit of that. Um, the dollar dynamics are always going to be fluid. Um, anyone mm -hmm. who trades on currency knows that it's not for the weak stomach because uh, mm -hmm. the volatility on currencies is so strong that mm -hmm. that if you're trading on the basis of that, you're, you're going to win and you're going to lose uh, at random. That's just mm -hmm. how the currency market works. Um, the other sea change would be the possibility of no recession, at least through this winter, because the reserves are near a hundred percent in Europe. Um, England though is concerned, right? They, they hit, they hit a cold snap a few weeks ago and they offered credits or rebates for people who don't use energy. Mm -hmm. So we know how sensitive that is. And I would never <clears throat> invest based on the weather. Because weather always changes. That I, I don't know what we're we're quite not out of um, winter yet. You know, until March, so we got six weeks of potential winter left in Europe. And if they don't have the oil supply line, <clears throat> which I think they're working on now, they just takes long. It takes longer to set up new trade routes. And I think hopefully they could get it in by next winter, but. The issue is getting through this winter without a cold snap. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's just shift over to mortgage rates because mortgage rates have come down actually in the face of the Fed increasing rates. We've talked about this a few times over the course of the Fed increasing rates yeah. when they've given certain guidance, you know, they'll raise by a half a percent or three quarters of a percent, but actually interest rates go down. Which is sort yeah. of interesting. So I have this this article here from just about a week ago. Mortgage rates tumble below 6%. Relief is creeping into the real estate market in the form of lower mortgage rates. The average 30-rate mortgage rate is now 5.99 for the first time in months. So what do we make of this? Can we just explain for our listeners why when the Fed raises rates, do interest rates sometimes go down? Yeah, yeah, I think... <clears throat> If you're just looking at common sense, the Fed raises rates by 0.25%. Everything else goes up by 0.25%, but that doesn't mm -hmm. work like that. And uh, We'll get into what the Fed can control and what it can't. But 
this is a bit of a financial conditions conditions easing by that one term disinflation right mm-hmm. jay powell came out much softer we call that dovish in this world than what he has been which was hawkish meaning we're gonna stamp out inflation and we're gonna keep rates keep raising rates until it's gone then all of a sudden we start hearing terms like disinflation not just we the entire market right what we're talking about is public information and not only has anyone, everyone heard it, they've already acted on it and they've already priced out future right. rates on right. that. So mortgage rates coming down, I think that's one of the last things we need right now uh, because housing because housing has such a domino effect in terms of inflation where if people are suddenly seeing equity in their homes, they're going to they're gonna tap into that. They're going to remodel their backyard or their house, right? They're going to buy cars with it they're gonna consolidate credit and spend more so it has this this cascading effect of new spending which i think is good and i think that's what our credit system is allowed for but when inflation's still around four percent in terms of pce do we need something to reignite that fire mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the seven to ten year treasury is Typically tied to mortgage rates, uh, you might be saying, well, everyone pays the 30-year fix. Why don't we peg it to the 30-year you know, treasury? Well, one, refinances happen. But two, uh, mortgages are amortized, meaning I have a 30-year loan. I'm paying it down. So the principal owed shrinks over time, right? So typically what we see is the combination of refinances and the paying down of mortgages, the a 30-year fixed mortgage actually lines up pretty closely, or broadly, the the mortgage market lines up with a 7- to 10-year treasury. Interesting. We, yeah, we saw it start at 4% this year. came down to 3.3, 3.4. It's back up, which is probably one of the reasons why the stock market is giving back some of its gains. But I think that's what's needed, at least for the time being. We just need to get clear of this inflationary environment hmm. interesting so what i heard there though too so there's there's sort of two types of loans let me just unpack something that you said there so sure let's say that you have a home equity line of credit or a securities loan like a margin loan on your investments those are typically tied to something called fed funds or prime and when the Fed is 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 influencing interest rates, we you know we technically say they can't control interest rates; they can influence them. Yep. So if they come out and they raise their benchmark rate by 0.25, that affects things like the prime rate, the overnight lending rate, yep. um, the Fed funds rate, this type of thing. So when you have a variable loan, your loan will go in the last number of months here, really year, up as the Fed increases interest rates. But when you have a loan that is sort of influenced but not directly by the fed correct it's more floating based on what the market is pricing in correct and that's why if the fed comes out here as they did and they say hey we're going to raise by we're going to still raise but not by as much the market may have already priced in a more aggressive rate policy and mm-hmm. so based on the Fed's comments, when they come out and they say, hey, we're going to do less than anticipated, that's why longer term interest rates actually can come down 
because the market then reprices this new information. So it's a little bit wonky, but that's why you see longer term rates like mortgage rates, um, the last actually number of times that the Fed has raised rates go down because their guidance has been pretty positive yep. with the outlook on inflation and the work that they're doing. Yeah, and there's so much cash that's been built up from selling in the last year. You could tell when January turned, everyone was looking for somewhere to park that cash. Mm -hmm. We've been saying that, that, that it does need to find a home. It doesn't have to be the stock market, but it's going to come in the form of spending, investment, um, yes, savings. But we're seeing the savings rate, the, the M2 money supply, like in terms of the entire country, actually shrink for the first time in its history, right? Money supply typically grows. Hmm. So we've had M2 actually shrink in the last quarter. Is that which is good money on the sidelines? So M2 is money in money market, savings accounts, checking accounts. Okay. And it's just a measurement that, that the Fed looks at. Uh, it's always grew, grown because when I buy a car, that money is financed from a bank, but mm -hmm. that finance money goes to another bank who in turn finances it again for another car, right? That, mm -hmm. that, that exponential growth of money. We, we actually had shrinkage of that. <laughs> and the other key would be velocity of money, how fast the money circulates through our economy. And that's been shrinking too. So we're seeing a lot of like underlying fundamental data that shows a slowing in spending. So I know we see headlines of, Hey, people can't afford this or that. Those people probably don't don't really move the needle because we're talking trillions of dollars. But mm. M two money supply was twenty trillion. It, it's, it's still hovering around that rate, but it is not growing up to twenty one trillion, twenty two trillion. So, but that would suggest that people are spending more than they have in the bank. If I have a thousand dollars in the bank, and I I I have a thousand dollars of income. Yeah. And I spent 1500 you know, now I only have $500 left in the bank. That's what's affecting M2? Kind of, because when you spend that money, it's at a merchant. Where is that merchant? Mm -hmm. The merchant's banking somewhere, so that money... Got it. They're yeah, the M2 does bank. Yeah. But if you're not creating new money, loaning out, uh, giving new credit, that kind of thing, that, that has an impact on new deposits. Ah, yeah. I see. I see. Right. Because if I, so different example, I buy a car, it's 50 grand and I put yep. 5,000 down and I finance 45, the 45 was created via debt. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. backed by deposits. We'll of get course. into that. Yeah. We'll get into yeah. that when we talk about the yield curve, but yeah, you hit it. It's, it's that 40, that extra, that full 50,000 is going to go to the car dealer's bank, whoever they're with. Yeah. Yeah. But and, not out of my bank. Therefore. Exactly. The, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So the fact that the overall M2 just shows there's, yeah, new money not being created or credit specifically not being created to give me, allow for new deposits. Give me an example of velocity of money. Help me yeah. understand that better. What does that mean? Uh, in terms of physics, velocity is the speed of something, right? Or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm butchering physics <laughs> completely. But velocity of money is how fast... Uh, money flows through the 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 system, so mm -hmm. yeah. If you're not buying a car, that fifty thousand is not moving, right? It's stuck at your bank. Mm -hmm. But if you do buy a car, that fifty thousand is in velocity. It's moving to another mm -hmm. bank, so mm -hmm. they in turn will loan out another forty thousand, right? Mm -hmm. 
banks have to keep a certain amount of deposits, mm-hmm. but they can loan out the rest above the reserve requirements. Mm-hmm. I'll get into that as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's how money grows and grows and grows by spending or mm-hmm. specifically by credit. Hmm. Okay. So velocity is a measure of economic activity. If velocity is lower, people aren't out buying cars or buying homes or doing, you know, spending, spending with debt and whatnot. Yeah. Velocity is higher. There's a lot of that economic activity. Yeah. And uh, if we looked at a velocity chart, it's actually been um, coming way down since the 80s. So hmm. big, the people that really control velocity of money are big institutions. And we've had velocity really come down so to where it, that's probably one of the big reasons why inflation hasn't been an issue in the last 40 years because it wasn't – money wasn't circulating like it has been in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? And we talk about 70s inflation, but 60s mm-hmm. inflation was still around 7 8%. So, yeah. so <clears throat> velocity of money I think is the key to creating new, new credit, new deposits – new M2 money supply. So you're saying there's less economic activity today than there was in the 60s and 70s? Uh, less less economic actors, meaning, uh, meaning it, it, again, it might be uh, uh, the bigger spenders are concentrated to the top, you know, the top earners who mm-hmm. simply don't spend what they take in, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. we know the bottom... 85% or so of wage earners are spending 105% of their wages coming in, right? They spend right. more than they take in. That The dynamics shift for the top top earners where they, they only spend 60% of what they take in. Right. So that 40% isn't in velocity anymore, at least in the sense that we're thinking of uh, spending in inflation. Hmm. They're, they're investing, obviously, but... As the country has gotten richer over time, due to in what you're saying, you know, if I'm worth a hundred billion dollars, I'm not spending nearly the percentage of that as I would be if I yeah. was worth a hundred million dollars. Jeff Bezos isn't spending 105 billion. Right. Yeah, because it's right. well, he's not entirely liquid either. A lot of it's tied up at, in Amazon stock. So right. if he sold all of his Amazon stock, that's what. I'm throwing a ballpark number out there. That's a 10% volume hit. Sure. Assuming he owns 10% of a Amazon. I yeah. don't know the exact figure, but you, I think you get what I'm saying is a lot of the, the net worth is tied up in assets that they can't sell or probably shouldn't sell. Why don't we shift over to the yield curve? I think this is a decent segue into yeah. that. So the yield curve is inverted. It's been inverted for a while. And let's just take a step back to for our listeners and explain what is the yield curve and what does it represent and what does it mean when it's inverted? Yeah, the yield curve is just a fancy, I guess, term, Wall Street term to say, what are one-year um, loans paying and what are 30-year loans paying, right? So between maturities from zero, really, all the way to 30 years out, what are the individual interest rates that are showing up for, you know, committing your capital for longer, right? If I if I were loaning out money and I had an option of loaning out for one year or 20 years, normally I would expect more, more interest in return for giving up my money for 20 years, right? That's mm-hmm. a long time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're that's in a normal market. What we're seeing now is loaning out my money for a shorter period of time, one to two years, is actually getting me more yield than loaning out my money for seven, 10, 15, 30 years. Because that's what we call by inversion. Um, and that's what we're seeing direct response of what the Fed can control and what the Fed can't control. So we mentioned that seven year, seven to 10 year is more tied to mortgage rates. If that is getting depressed by demand, you know, domestically and internationally, that's going to bring down the seven to 10 year, and that should bring down mortgage rates, mm-hmm. right? The Fed has no buying or control over that part of the curve, mm-hmm. right? What what Chris mentioned was that overnight rate gets toggled up and down. What that means is if I'm a bank of how, and Chris is the bank of Chris, right? He takes that $50,000 car loan, <clears throat> And he loans out all fifty thousand, mm-hmm. but in the United States, we our banks need to hold a certain amount of reserves on cash in case those fifty thousand dollars in savings are withdrawn. Mm-hmm. So, if he loans out fifty thousand, he needs to carry five thousand at least in his vaults. He has zero. He has zero. So he goes to the bank of Howe and says, "Hey, can I borrow uh, five thousand? To put in my vault, so when I get, you know, uh, under the watchful eye of regulators, I have the the required reserve amount on hand to pass muster, right? Mm-hmm. Then once they inspect my books, I I send it back to How and pay the overnight rate. That's where the Fed's Fed's impact is. So so I'm borrowing. Or I'm lending out to Chris for 4% so he could pass reserve requirements, which mm-hmm. no bank has running into right now. But yeah. that's that's what banks are when you hear the term borrow short and lend long. Because to, to cover those $50,000 worth of loans, he needs $5,000 worth of cash on hand. Right? Mm-hmm. If that $5,000 cash on the hand is costing him 4%, and that $50,000 loan, which is a let's say a seven-year car loan is bringing in maybe 2%. I'm losing a net of 2% on the cash that I have to borrow mm-hmm. and the cash I'm loaning out. Mm-hmm. You see where the inverted mm. yield curve suddenly starts slowing down the economy? Because you're the bank of Chris. You don't want to loan out money anymore, especially if car loans, mortgage rates are below what you have to pay in deposits. Which we'll get in. You're probably yelling at us like, "Oh, my my Wells Fargo or my Bank of America is paying point oh six percent, right? Yeah, they're yeah. paying nothing." But you go to Ally Bank uh, at the time, Mark is paying three and a half, four percent, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a supply demand. Those big banks don't need new money because they're not loaning out, right? Yeah, I've read Those, that they have plenty of capital on their balance sheet, so they <laughs> they don't need to incent more cash, which yeah. is why. We all the aren't receiving too. really anything in our yeah. bank accounts, but you go to the smaller banks, they, they need the cash to make these reserve requirements that you're talking about. And so they're actually paying something that's yeah. more like a market rate. Yeah. So if you think about it in a macro sense where you combine all the banks collectively, if it costs them to loan out money, like they're actively losing money by loaning out money on a collective, right. what do you think that does to the economy? If they're not approving car loans, if they're not approving 
mortgage loans. I know they are, but that that activity slows down because they're not making as much of a spread, or they're actually inverted in the spread, where they actually so I can see, could be losing. I can money. see how you're saying they're not making as much. I guess where I'm hung up is again fifty thousand dollar car loan, fifty thousand dollar car loan at you know four percent, and that's a, a five year loan. And then you're yep. saying the bank needs to borrow some money potentially from another bank to meet their reserve requirement, and maybe they're paying. 6% on that money, 5% on that mm -hmm. money. So they're yep. paying more. But if they're earning 4% on 45,000 and only paying 6% on or paying 6% on only 5,000, yeah. The net net is still a positive cash flow to the bank. It will. So the yes. bank's still making yep. money, it's just that the margin is less. Yes. Because in the olden days it was I don't know, a quarter of a percent to loan that half, you know, 5 5,000 and maybe still 2% Yes. To, for the 50,000. Exactly. Was, okay. Okay. So that's why an inverted yield curve has always predicted. It slows things. Yeah, it slows things because every recession has been predicated by an inverted yield curve. doesn't necessarily mean we, since we're suffering through a, a yield curve inversion, doesn't mean a recession is 100% guaranteed, if that makes sense. Because the yield curve can uninvert. Yep. And this is this has happened many times. It will invert and then uninvert, and we don't have a recession. So it's not. So what you're saying is that when the inverted so recessions happen during inverted yield curves, but sometimes inverted yield curves uninvert, and then we don't have a recession. Yeah, yeah. So if you're you're banking on a recession because of the yield curve inversion, yes, there's heightened risk of that because lending is not as profitable. So when you don't lend, the economy slows. But let's mm. say the economy slows enough to where inflation goes away and the Fed starts cutting rates on the short end, meaning your your car loans are still 4%, right, or whatever figure we used. But all of a sudden, to pay for the overnight rate for, between the bank of Howe and Chris, even though it's a, a small fraction of what we were actually, you know, exposed to or lent, lent out with, it's still that it becomes that much cheaper. That, that's what the the market is pricing in right now is a Fed pivot. We mm -hmm. we think there's a pause, so the Fed will go up to five percent and just stay there for a few months. Mm -hmm. The market's saying the Fed needs to cut rates because we're we're facing a severe recession if they don't. Mm -hmm. Meaning, they need to make lending as profitable for banks to keep money circulating back up again. Mm -hmm. Right, that act in itself is inflationary if you're a little too early with it. That goes back to the seventies where Arthur Burns was, Oh, we got members. We got a recession. Let's pivot and cut rates. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden that, that spurred or rekindled the inflation fire. Hmm. So when a yield curve inverts, is there a certain amount of time that on average produces this apparent recession? Yeah. Historically it's been uh, eight months to 18 months. So yeah, if you see a yield it's a curve range. inversion, yeah, it's we've been inverted since the late summer, so it's been a steep inversion and a very long and drawn out inversion. Huh. But should we use that historical average as you know an outlook to the future? I don't know. We're we're coming out of a post pandemic situation here where yeah. supply chains were snarled, labor force issues are coming up, right there. There's all these things that were pandemic driven and to unwind all that, 
I don't think there's a playbook or historical precedent for this. Every time a yield curve uninverts and then reinverts, do we reset the clock on that eight to 18 month? I think it does um, for huh. it to, so, but that first inversion counts as that 18 month clock. So yeah. you can have that, that yield curve invert, uninvert and invert again. Meaning, mm -hmm. meaning if, if we get like a full fledged European recession, the U S doesn't need one, all that mm -hmm. money from risk assets in Europe suddenly start piling into U.S. debt. And that pushes our yield curve down further. Mm -hmm. So that makes it even tougher for U.S. domiciled banks to to transact because their spreads are that much tighter. Hmm. They're still making money, but they're it's not as beneficial to them to loan out money if, let's say, the mortgage rates go, down, go back down to 4%, right? There's going to be a ton of mortgage demand, but banks are probably going to raise their standards because they don't want to lend out that, that kind of money. Especially if their, their one month rate, their overnight rate is around 4%. Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I certainly agree. We're in uncharted territory. I mean, we always are, right? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. So I think we can use history, you know, those, those that, that listen to us regularly, you know, we use history on, if you diversify, you'd be okay long-term, which, uh, that's a, that's a pretty good bet. For the rest of these things, you know, if you're trying to predict the recession or interest rates or this, that, and the other, man, that's hard. Yeah. It's hard to get that right with a high degree of, of success. So, uh, we would certainly caution outright calls for, for, you know, certain economic changes based on one or two factors, because these things are always different. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of reasons headline wise to sit out this rally. Um, a lot of the smart money has been lagging. Right, they, a lot of active managers are uh, about eighty percent of them beat their respective benchmarks last year. Wow, it's I think, I think we talked about it um, pre-podcast, but it never came up during the recording. But eighty percent beat their benchmarks. It's usually the inverse of that. It's the inverse. It's usually eighty percent miss. Yeah, the the reason why they did it is they held so much cash, so cash uh. saved them, right? And guess what's happening now? Only 29% are beating the benchmark this year. It's because they because the market rallied. They didn't invest their cash. So if you're paying huh. someone, if, know your this something to watch for. Yeah. <laughs> if you're paying someone to invest your money, why are they holding cash when, well, again, cash is earning 4% depending on where you look. But why are you paying someone to invest, not invest, basically? And I think that's one of our bugaboos with, with active investing, which, yeah, again, we're cash not. Drag. Yeah, against or for, but it's just something we watch out for. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you have all these smart money managers, right, like in the market by, yeah, yeah, use, again, that's a Wall Street term, dumb money for retail and smart money for, yeah. for not, they're institutional players, they're not necessarily smarter, um, as 2020 proved out, 2021 proved out. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that's, yeah, that's, that's the dynamic of the market that we're looking at. So this kind of proves that is a retail driven rally, but so is 2020 just because retail's leading doesn't mean it's a dumb rally or, or a false bear market rally. You know, it's interesting too, is that I have been seeing, uh, reading that Tesla stock has been the most purchased stock 
out of all the other stocks, and it's primarily driven by retail money. And retail yeah. money is you, know, you hop in your Robinhood account or your Fidelity account or whatever, and you buy a share of Tesla. And you and everybody else that does that actually creates a ton of inbound money into yeah. a single stock. Buying pressure. Yeah. Buying pressure. Yet More buyers than sellers, right? <laughs> don't give me that again. <laughs> yeah. In the face of all that, Tesla stock has gone down or did go down quite significantly in the face of all of that buying pressure, which should have been supportive yeah. and then hit an apparent bottom or at least bottom for the time and then skyrocketed since that point. I think it's up a hundred percent from its bottom now, which, it, it, which is a yeah. crazy run in about a month worth of, of trading. So yeah. from a I, business I, point of view, they, their margins came from, went down from 30% down to 20% and even tighter after these price cuts right yeah that shouldn't be celebrated in a fundamental sense because on a per unit margin basis that company isn't as profitable as it was in 2019 which is interesting right because the the market would then suggest okay you know it might be worth less because they tesla holds the you know they're the king of margins yeah. in cars no one touches them gets anywhere the, the close apple to the of cars right car. you don't want to be the walmart of cars which is you know ford or gm right Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And they're being celebrated for heading that direction. I just that doesn't jive with me. It's it's very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it could be a, a simple case of less bad. You know, like we talked about in the past, markets will sell off in anticipation of bad news or or really really bad outcome or or a recession, for example. And yeah. then if the news gets a little bit better, the I shouldn't say the news, maybe the economic data gets a little bit better. The, the market might actually go up or the stock might actually go up in the face of an otherwise bad earnings report yeah, because it's a less bad uh, outcome. And maybe that's what happened with Tesla here. And, you know, they cut prices at the end of the year. No one knew where their earnings was going to land. No one knew if they were still selling cars. And then they came out and they said, our demand is still double what we can make. Like, this is still just insane. We have, we have more buyers than cars, even though we dropped prices. And so, yeah, Which our margins are running yeah, if demand is that high, why depress mar margins, especially when supply costs? It's a are good going question. Up. Yeah, and what we in ultimately invest in is business profits. If a business is willingly lowering their profits to increase volume, I would always prefer the the margin protection over mm -hmm. volume growth. It's again we, we saw it with Lyft, who is off. You know, off by thirty five percent. Tanked, yeah. Zero margin businesses do not survive. Yeah. So if you're heading down that zero sum game, that shouldn't be celebrated, right? <laughs> Apple, Apple's been Apple because they, the cost of the iPhone has never gone down. I don't, I don't know if I should say never, but the the flagship. I know they offer offshoots, right? But mm -hmm. they protect the margins mm -hmm. in every aspect of their business to see. The the price running up on Tesla is it, yeah it's it's confounding because I want a profitable company that protects its margins. It's interesting too because I I, I want to say when they raised prices at some point over the summer they pointed towards commodities they said hey the the, the yeah. cost of building our cars has gone up we have to raise our prices by whatever five grand or something they they jumped by quite a bit but yeah. when they lowered them they they didn't point back to falling commodities prices. No, and no. I think if that was the real case, they would have been smart to sort of point back to that and say, hey, we promised you we would lower prices when raw materials came down, which has happened. And then they didn't point to that. They just said, hey, we're cutting costs. And they sort of just secretly did it overnight 
Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, you don't really know what's, what's going on, right? You can't, you can't unpack that fully. You just have to listen to an earnings call and, and, and yeah, make, make with it what you can. Yeah, I, know, I know we're uh, getting towards the end of it, but if we brought it out to beyond Tesla, right? We just went through the big tech earnings and it's been, been a pretty mixed bag. I know yeah, we wanted to bag. talk about how Amazon had the biggest drop in what Amazon posted market. the biggest loss in their yeah. company history. So they lost $2.7 billion on $514 billion of revenue, which is, uh, you know, typical, typical Amazon, right? Super thin margin, slight swing to a profit, slight swing to, to a loss. Um, but they basically said escalating costs were, were the main thing. And, and of course they announced more layoffs as well. So, um, uh, you know, I think it's, it's not surprising for a company that runs with such thin margins as it, as it is. Um, I think it'll be interesting to, you know, getting through the next, eh, maybe six to 12 months with a lot of these tech layoffs. I think we'll get to see how profitable a lot of these big tech companies really are. And, um, I think Amazon is probably a lot more profitable than they lead on to because they historically have invested so much money in, in growing their 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 operations and their bandwidth and if they were to pause some of that um because say you know demand has come down uh, I, I i would assume that they would swing to some pretty insane uh profits but nah, that could be wrong you know yeah. i don't know yeah and again they they like uh meta and i i don't know about google so much but they they all overhired right and they they took these pandemic projections and hired based on that growth rate Right. And assuming that was going to happen last year in 2023. And, and again, small percentage ultimately leaving. I, I know we looked at a chart of, of the amount of hiring versus the amount of layoffs. Yeah. They're still very, very much, uh, uh, net positive, like by 90 plus percent. That's my thing. I was like, did they overhire? You know, they added, yeah. I don't have it in front of me, but you know, a company might add 10,000 people or 50,000 people, and then they hire off or they, they lay off 2000 people or, or 5,000 people or something. And it's like, I mean, did they really overhire if they're not yeah. rolling back the tape that far? Yeah. Obviously revenues have grown and we need more, more, more jobs, you know, to, to do the work, but I don't know. I, I kind of feel like it's, it, it is an opportunity for a lot of these companies because there's other layoffs elsewhere to say, Hey, here's our opportunity to kind of cut on one of these areas that it was more research and development based, or maybe wasn't really making money, hasn't played out. Everybody else is laying off. So let's take the chance to just do it now. That way we don't look bad. Yeah. You know, if one company's laying, laying off a team and no one else is, it's weird, but now it's sort of the opportunity for senior leadership to look across the company and say, this area is underperforming. Now let's just do something that everybody else is doing and we won't look so bad. So again, I don't know that that's not a fact. Yeah. I'm not yeah. a C-suite executive at one of these companies, but I have to think that's a fly on the wall conversation in there. That's saying sure. now's the opportunity. Let's just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Let you use other layoffs as cover, right? Yeah. Yeah. And use it as, hey, we're looking out for the bottom line. Let's pivot over to a couple of final topics here. So you have this this note in here on one trick ponies. And uh, I just thought this would be kind of fun to talk about here for a minute. What do you have here? Yeah. One trick ponies. This is a, a fun article by Jack Rains. He... He is a young, young and up and coming writer. And, uh, he mentioned, uh, the guy who made Kyle Bass, who made a lot of money on bets against the U S real estate market, right? He bought a lot of credit default swaps and famously, I guess he was depicted as one of the, the young traders in 
the Big Short movie with Steve Carell. I don't know if you watched that. But I did. He, yeah, he and his partner um, generated $30 million in assets, and they bet against the U.S. market. And that became a pretty fruitful bet. But since then, he's made quite a bit of bets that that have not paid off. And I think a lot of it has to do with timing, right? He bet against the, the Bank of Japan or the Japanese economy. It would spiral, and he was wrong. Um, this is Michael Burry, right? Uh, Michael Burry is another one, oh. <clears throat> another person who was Sorry, showcased in the in the movie. But yeah, this guy Kyle Bass was uh, bet against the Japanese economy um, that it would just implode. It didn't until 2022. So he made this bet in 2012. Whoa. So you're 10 years early. You're right, but you're 10 years early. That's not a bet. That's a guess. Yeah. Well, there are guesses, a, but. Yeah, well, when you're talking about the global economy, right? Um, and there's these patterns of these guys who made a lot of money off of uh, that one 2007, 2008 event. Mm-hmm. And they've been wrong since. And they've been chasing, I guess, chasing that that big home run that works against what 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 the optimistic point of view is. Well, so Michael Burry, Burry is another person who was highlighted in the movie and in the book that he he made this similar bet. And he, his habit is to say, get out of this rally. It's, it's crashing. It's all coming down. Mm-hmm. And when he comes out to be wrong, at least in the moment, he deletes his tweets. He might have other reasons <laughs> to delete his tweets, but, uh, Jeremy Grantham, um, famous value investor, been calling for, uh, a steep, like a uh, great depression level of sell-off since 2011. Are you going to sideline your cash for 12 years? Right. And you, granted, we've been through the pandemic, uh, 2022, right. But we also had 2017, 2019, 2021, 2020. Yeah. You're going to sit out all those years because one guy says something. And I have a ton of respect for Jeremy Grantham above all, because he has a consistent career of still being successful while being bearish. Um, but he's, he's out there and he's being published by these, uh, by the news media with his with his forecast and if you're wrong for that entire time you can't you can't rely on that as an investment thesis i know there's plenty of reasons to be scared of the market but there have always been since 2011 oh yeah right? every day yeah and greek debt crisis 2011 specifically for uh the u.s downgrade because of the debt ceiling limit mm-hmm. which <laughs> was ironically living through again but 2012 2013 and beyond have been in amazing investing years and there's no guarantee that that's going to happen again but are you willing to sit out because of a once in a generation event would happen i think we already got that i think we already got it in 2020 so for something at that level to happen again i think it would take a lot mm. hmm yeah, well, you know how much I get into it with media and how there's constant <laughs> negative negative calls. But, yeah, it is amazing that there's these people out there that just consistently post negative things year over year over year. They're consistently wrong, and then they're right, and then they're famous for a minute, and yeah. then, and then and they're they wrong get, again. And they get brought back again because CNBC can't get enough of them. They're yeah. suddenly finance heroes. Uh, everyone knows Michael Berry because of that one trade, but he's been wrong for for consistent amount of time if you call a recession every other month you're going to be right eventually yeah so 
Yeah. There you go. And one last thing before we go, I, I, I know I butchered the price of eggs. I just wanted to clear that up. So that a pallet of eggs is 60 eggs. That was $24 and not $60. So I hmm. transpose. So still 50 cents of a freaking egg is expensive. But I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, headlines. Headlines really drum up the, the, the I guess, the pessimistic part of it. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, the prices of everything else has become steady or if, if not come down. Um, but eggs, yeah, egg, I think we're going to see eggs come down. I think we saw well, wholesale egg prices come way down, but we'll see that on a lag, meaning if I'm a grocery store, I have a contract, albeit short-term, with farmers, right? So got to work through that contract, and then the price of eggs should should get much, much, much cheaper. Yeah. I think I'm still seeing at the store, you can only buy two cartons of eggs. I think there's still the, the shortage sign. Like everybody remembers at the beginning of the pandemic, you can only buy two remember, yeah. like things of frozen broccoli or whatever. You couldn't, couldn't stop the <laughs> fridge. And so eggs, I, I think I'm still seeing that sign there. So I thought prices came down a little bit, but anyway, thanks for clarifying. I didn't know how many eggs were in a pallet. Thanks for that, 60. Now we know. <laughs> and then also 24 bucks, which uh, not bad, right? I don't know. 60 cents an egg. I don't know what they should be. Well, not as bad Seems as they butchered it. Yeah. 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 Well, it wasn't 60 bucks. Like I said on the last call, a buck and egg is a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, this is fun as always. We will talk again soon. Yeah. Hopefully it's insightful for everyone. <laughs>